In episode 77 of the Guitar Music Theory podcast, I talk about how to play legato. Greetings, guitar engineers. Welcome to the Guitar Music Theory Podcast. I am your host, Desi Serna. Today, I'm going to talk about legato. I'm going to explain what it is, why guitar players use it, and how they do it. But before I get started, what do you need to be working on right now to become a better guitar player? Go to my website, guitarmusictheory.com, answer the questions I ask you about your playing, and I'll send you free custom video instruction calibrated to your current level. I'll show you what you specifically need to be working on right now in order to fill gaps in your playing and move forward. Enroll in your free course now at guitarmusictheory.com. You can click on the link in the podcast show notes. All right, so let's dive in. All right, so there are basically two ways that you can set strings in motion when you sound notes on guitar. You could either use your picking hand like this, or you can sound the notes using your fretting hand like this. Now, you can't see what I'm doing, but you can probably hear the difference. When I pick all of the notes, I get a very uh, clear, uh, defined attack on each note. When I use my left hand to sound the notes, I have to use hammer-ons and pull-offs and slides in order to keep the string in vibration. And the result is, is that the notes sound slurred. In music, we call this uh, slurred sound or the smooth transition between notes legato, L-E-G-A-T-O, legato. Now, guitarists will play legato at times for two reasons. Uh, number one, they might like the sound of it. And number two, it eliminates pick strokes, which can make some parts easier to play. So, for example, in a... Uh, uh, Previous but recent podcast episode, I talked about the song Gravity by John Mayer. And the lead lines in that song are played in the pentatonic scale, G major to be specific. And to make some of those phrases sound legato, John Mayer uh, moved through the scale horizontally on one string using hammer-ons and pull-offs and slides. And it sounded like this. In the solo to Stairway to Heaven by Led Zeppelin, uh, Jimmy Page plays a descending pentatonic scale, this time using kind of your typical vertical movement the way that you're used to playing up and down pentatonic patterns. But he actually used some pull-offs to eliminate some of the pick strokes. So the line that I'm referring to sounds like this. Mm -hmm. 
and I was using some pull-offs. Now, if I play it all with pick strokes, it sounds like this. And that's one option, and you may like that sound, but Paige chose to uh, use the pull-offs, probably in part because uh, he was more comfortable playing the lead line because it eliminated some pick strokes, and I also think it kind of gives it more of a flowing sound, and perhaps that's what Paige was going for as well. So here it is, uh, here it is all picked. And then here it is with some pull-offs, eliminating some pick strokes and making it sound more legato. For my tone today, I'm through, playing through my Camper Profiling Amplifier using the Stu G Arshol uh, profile from Tone Junkie once again. And then I'm playing my Bluesman Vintage Guitars uh, sedan which is basically a Stratocaster. All right, back to today's topic. I want you to listen to some clips that I have of some different guitarists playing, just so you understand the difference between playing legato and picking all, all of the notes, so you can understand how stylistically it's different. So, for example, Eric Johnson is famous for playing some really fast lead lines where he picks most of the notes. Here's a clip. <laughs> All right, so, wow, a lot going on there, and it goes by uh, so quickly. There were some articulations in there, like uh, pull-offs, but most of those notes were picked, and you could really hear that. Again, you've got that uh, very uh, clearly defined, sharp attack on each note. Now, compare that to a guitarist like Joe Satriani. Joe Satriani actually built his speed around the legato um, idea, so he uses a lot of hammer-ons and pull-offs. Here is a clip of Joe. Oh, yeah. So, can you tell the difference in sound there? So, um, Eric Johnson was picking most of his notes, and Joe Satriani was using a lot of hammer-ons and pull-offs playing legato. So, there's a difference in sound, and then there's also advantages in, uh, from a technique uh, point of view. Uh, Satriani not needing to synchronize his fretting fingers with his picking hand, and so... He feels more comfortable with that, and he plays a lot of his fast lines that way. He kind of built his style around that particular technique because it was a, was a, a strength of his. Now, uh, most guitarists will make use of both approaches. Uh, you know, So there's times where they'll pick notes, and there's times where they'll uh, uh, play legato using hammer-ons and pull-offs uh, and that sort of thing. So, you know, for example, here's a clip of Stevie Ray Vaughan, and you can hear in this clip that Stevie Ray is picking most of his notes. All right, that was a little bit of rude mood there. And then here is another clip of Stevie Ray Vaughan. Uh, this is a live version of Voodoo Child, and there's a moment in this performance where he just kind of let his picking hand uh, fall down to his side, and he played this particular run all with his left hand playing legato. 
So when guitarists play legato, they typically do it in combination with picked notes. So one way that you can practice is to play up and down pentatonic and major scale patterns by picking the first note on each string, but then sounding the rest using hammer-ons and pull-offs. So for example, here's A minor pentatonic. This is pattern one in the fifth position. So you could practice playing up that, and instead of picking all the notes, just pick the first note on the string and then hammer into the next one. And then you can just play a descending scale where you pick first and then you pull off. So that's a great exercise to sharpen your hammer-ons and your pull-offs and to practice playing legato. Here it is again. And you can do the same thing in other pentatonic patterns, and you can do the same thing in any scale pattern for that matter, but you know that um, in music, most uh, guitar parts are played in either a pentatonic or major scale pattern. At least you should know that if you've been following any of my instruction. You can see some of my guitar theory instruction to learn more about that. So here's the same idea using hammer-ons and pull-offs, playing legato in a major scale pattern. I'm going to come up here to C at the 8th fret on the 6th string, and I'm going to play through a major scale pattern. This is a three notes per string pattern. Um, here it is, picked. I'll stop there. And then here it is with hammer-ons playing legato. Then I can go backward using pull-offs. All right, so um, the reason why some players really like playing legato is because, like Joe Satriani, um, they find that they can play faster and it's easier because they're eliminating some of the pick strokes. And then another reason is because they like the sound of it too. So if I speed this up, um, here it is if I pick all the notes. Uh, backward. And then here it is legato. So you might prefer the sound of the legato with the hammer-ons and pull-offs. You might feel like it's smoother, that it just has more uh, flow to it. And then it, cer it certainly can be easier when, um, if you've got some sharp technique with your left hand when you play hammer-ons and pull-offs, as long as you can produce a good sound, I'll talk about that in a second, um, uh, it can be easier to play faster when you use when you play legato because you, your right hand doesn't have to pick all of the notes. Let me do the same thing in the in the major scale as well. If I try to go through the pattern quickly, it's certainly easier to do that than it is for me to try to pick every note. Although you might want to practice it both ways just to see what you're most comfortable with, what you, um, which sound you prefer. Um, there certainly are times when um, the best thing to do is pick all of the notes where you wouldn't want to play legato. So you kind of want to be prepared uh, when you need to have those types of uh, picking skills. You can see my course, Guitar Picking Mechanics, for more on that topic. I've got a book that's for sale on Amazon, and I also have a video version of uh, the course. If you want to learn more about... Um, uh, picking mechanics and picking techniques. I don't really 
talk much about legato in, in that course because I mainly fo focus on how you use a pick and how you alternate pick and the different approaches to that and improving that technique. Anyway, so back to legato. Um, a lot of guitarists uh, like the technique because they like the sound and because they like the way that it makes some things easier by eliminating pick strokes. Now, in order to get a good legato, legato sound, though, you need to have good technique. So you might try to play through a scale pattern, and it might sound really messy. You might have uh, a difficult time controlling string noise or getting a good sound when you pull off to a note or hammer on to a note. So that's something that you need to practice. So when you're hammering on, you want to make sure that that you hammer your finger down firmly and you hammer, down, hammer it down in the right spot so that you can clearly uh, sound the note. And that takes some practice. Likewise, when you pull off, you want to make sure that you are kind of snapping the string with your pull-off finger in order to sound the note below it. You don't want to just lift your finger then the pull-off note's going to sound weak. You actually pick the string with your pull-off finger as you pull it away. You want to get a good snap on the string so that uh, the note is heard clearly. You can practice that in a pentatonic pattern. Uh, it actually works uh, really well. Now, in addition to making sure that your hammer-on and pull-off technique is sharp, you also, at the same time, need to control unwanted string noise. So even though you can't see me here, as I play up the pentatonic uh, pattern here, my picking hand, my right hand, is coming up onto the strings and resting on the unused strings to keep them quiet so that by the time I get to the top of the scale, my right hand is covering the other strings so that I don't have to, uh, so that I don't leave anything ringing and muddying up my playing. Um, also, with my fretting hand fingers, I am controlling string noise. I actually use portions of my index finger to bump into and mute the strings that surround the string that I'm playing on. So for example, when I pull off on the first string, you know, I'm pulling off from the eighth fret to the fifth fret on the first string here in the A minor pentatonic. And you could do this using your pinky and index finger or your ring finger and index finger. It doesn't really matter. The technique is the same either way. But as I fret that A note at the fifth fret on the first string, I'm not just resting my finger on the first string. I'm actually resting it on the first string, but also bumping into the second string above it with the tip of my index finger so that when I pull off, I don't accidentally uh, cause noise on that neighboring string. When I pull off on the second string, my index finger is fretting the E at the fifth fret on the second string. I'm bumping into the third string with the very tip of my index finger. And then I'm also kind of leaning my finger back so that a, like a portion of that uh, finger pad there is also bumping into the first string. So 
I'm fretting the second string, but I'm using a portion of the same finger to bump into the third string and bump into the first string so that oops, those two strings can't ring and make noise. And then here's the second string in the middle. Because when you pull off, um, it's kind of inevitable that you're likely to bump in to one of the neighboring strings there. You don't want this sort of sound. You know? Can you hear how there's noise in there? You don't want that. So you can control noise with your fretting hand fingers. This is something that really you should be doing all the time, particularly when you're playing through scales and playing lead lines. It's one way that you uh, make your playing sound clean. You don't want to hear a bunch of stuff ringing like that. So you're going to control that noise with your uh, uh, portion of your picking hand, and you're actually going to control that noise with the way that you fret notes. Same thing if you're in a major scale pattern. You don't just want to focus on the notes to fret. You want to focus on the strings to keep quiet. Now, at the beginning of this podcast episode, I played a uh, descending E minor pentatonic scale using a melodic pattern in groups of three. And to make it sound legato... I only picked the first note on each string and then I left the rest to my left hand. It sounded like this. And it's just a little run I made up um, to start this podcast and to actually start uh, the YouTube video on the same subject. So you can go to my YouTube channel, Desi Cerna Guitar, or just search Desi Cerna Legato. And you'll find my video on this same subject. This would be helpful if you actually want to see me uh, uh, perform these uh, techniques. And you can watch me play that run. And I also slow it down for you, and I provide some tabs so you could learn it, just as one little exercise and example of how you might use the legato technique. So again, I'm playing down the E minor pentatonic scale. I'm using a very common melodic pattern in groups of three. But instead of picking every note, I picked the first note on, on each string. And when I change strings, obviously I have to pick the first note on the string. But then whenever I could pull off to a note, uh, 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 pull off or hammer on to a note, I did. And so most of the notes end up being uh, not picked, played legato. And I actually started up here in the 12th position on the first string. And I began to go down pattern one, as you know it, in that position. But then once I got to the third string, I just slid down the third string. That was all third string there. And I'm sliding and hammering on and pull, pulling off. Uh, uh, so th it gets very legato there. Whoops. And I end here in the open position, so now I'm an octave lower, E minor pentatonic pattern one in the open position, and I kind of finish, finish it off. There's some pull-offs down here, 
going down the scale pattern, and then I slid up back up to E. And it's just a fun little uh, legato example, and uh, you could just try the, the idea itself without playing um, what I played here specifically, or if you want to learn specifically what I played, go watch my YouTube video where I slow it down and I provide tab. And that's pretty much all I wanted to cover today on legato. I do have some um, comments and questions that I want to respond to here for the remainder of this podcast episode. But before we get to that, let me just say that so using hammer-ons and pull-offs, eliminating pick strokes is something that you always want to be aware of, and it should always be an option, and you should consider using it in order to add variety to your sound or to simplify um, uh, your, your picking. So, you know, I played a portion of Stairway to Heaven earlier, and if you're learning how to play a solo like that, you, um, you know, think about how you might be able to well, you can take a look at how it was uh, tabbed specifically. But, you know, being successful as a player doesn't always involve you attempting to, to copy everything that you hear other people play. You got to figure out what you're most comfortable with. You got to learn how to play to your, to your strengths, you know. And there's always one, more than one way to skin a cat. So sometimes something can be played in a different position or with a different picking scheme or with some added hammer-ons or pull-offs that, that you know, weren't in the original uh, recording. Sometimes you can make these sort of adaptations and uh, you can make a part more comfortable for you to play. It just works better for your hands. It's, it's easier. Maybe you like the sound better. So I would say just keep this in mind with everything that you play. And we're mainly talking about lead lines here. This could apply to riffs too as well. But this is mainly for... Um, uh, lead lines, you know, if you can cut some corners, eliminate some pick strokes and hammer on certain notes or pull them off, does it help you play the lead line more smoothly? Do you like the way it sounds? You know, take that in, take that into consideration. And as you, uh, work on playing songs and, you know, learning solos and riffs and lead lines from, from music, just keep in mind that, it's helpful to, to use the tab and see what, um, what the tab says about how something was performed, but uh, you, know, you don't have to adhere strictly to the tab. You're using the tab to familiarize yourself with the part, but ultimately you have to figure out how are you most comfortable playing it or how might you prefer to play it uh, differently. So that's all you need to know about Legato for now. If you have additional questions, you can send them to me, desi at guitarmusictheory.com, or you can just go to my website and click on the contact link, and you could submit your question through the form there. Or if you're enrolled in a free course and you're on my email list and you're regularly getting my email messages with um, you know news and information on free lessons, you can just reply to any of the emails you might uh, receive. So now I want to change gears and uh, cover some uh, comments and questions I received. And the first one is actually regarding exercises. So it's not uh, too far off from what, from what we were talking about. And um, it, um, <clears throat> this came up with some discussion that was going on 
uh, on one of my YouTube videos where I talked about what I think the best type of, quote, exercise to practice on guitar is. And if you're familiar with that video, I tell you that the best exercises you can do are to play songs. And I explained that I'm not a big fan of playing exercises for the sake of exercises because I didn't pick up guitar to play exercises. I picked up guitar to play music, to play songs, to play, you know, uh, lead lines that I heard by uh, Jimi Hendrix or chord changes that I heard by Led Zeppelin and, and so on. So I like to learn songs and I like to use I like to use what I learn from songs as my exercise. So if I want to practice my hammer-ons or my picking, instead of just doing kind of a generic exercise, I want to practice the solo to Stairway to Heaven and use that as my exercise for a couple of reasons. I like that solo. I want to play it. I'm more motivated to practice because I'm actually playing something that I love. And um, when I'm done... I'll have the solo down. So I'll have something to show for myself apart from just playing an exercise. But also, because many of the exercises that I see are very impractical because you're playing in a manner that you wouldn't normally play when you're playing real music. And I want to prepare myself to play real music. I want to condition my hands to get used to what it's like to play real music. So when I practice my scale patterns, I want to play them in the way that people play them when they're playing melodic lead lines, right? So anyway, there was a little discussion going on there about this, and uh, I had some commenters that were concurring and saying, you're absolutely right. You know, I wasted time with exercises, then I started learning how to play songs, and that's really when my <clears throat> um, guitar playing uh, took shape. And then the conversation ended up leading to me making this admission, which is kind of a dirty little secret about exercise books. You know, they're very popular. Exercise video courses are very popular, too. Um, you know, there's some websites that will sell uh, courses to help you whip you into shape with certain sorts of drills and exercises and stuff. And here's the dirty little secret. These courses and these books... They are mainly ways for publishers to sell learning materials without needing to pay copyright fees. Uh, you know, we all want to learn songs, and m most, you know, many book authors and course creators would love to teach songs, but there's always issues with uh, copyrights, you know, uh, with playing uh, copyrighted songs. So it's easy to create uh, and learning materials that don't use any copyrighted songs. You avoid any of those legalities. And so publishers are looking to create content that avoids that. And so they often just create generic music or exercises or drills to fill up their learning materials so they have something to sell to you. So I actually know the author of one of the most popular exercise books. I'm not going to name him or his book, <laughs> but I, I know him and I know that he doesn't do the exercises and he never did. But he was hired by the publisher to fill a book with exercises. So he made up a bunch of exercises and people buy that book because they're under the impression that that's what's going to help them develop their skills. 
and uh, become good, but it's not really true. I mean, you certainly could improve your skills to some degree with these exercises, but you're going to, you could improve your skills by playing actual songs. And as I explained earlier, I think you're going to, you're actually going to develop your skills to, uh, in a manner that uh, equips you to play in the style of real music when you're playing uh, uh, real music. So um, because of the issue with, with uh, copyrighted music, a lot, of, a lot of learning materials for guitar have been built around generic exercises uh, instead. Um, so that's kind of a dirty little secret there. And I would be very careful about getting too wrapped up in that type of course. Now, don't get me wrong. They could have their place, um, you know, at times. Um, I mentioned Joe Satriani earlier and how he developed his legato technique. And if you watch some of his instructional videos, he shows you some of the exercises he used to get used to those hammer-ons and pull-offs and, and, and to do them rapidly. And then he used that in his... Uh, um, in his style and in his music. So they can have some place. And I'll also mention this. Um, there are times when exercises I don't think are very helpful in terms of really helping you develop, um, you know, a playing skill that's going to be useful. But if you enjoy it anyway, then don't let me spoil your fun. I spent a lot of time over the years you know, trying out different exercises. And I, I really felt like most of them were just not, not useful, but I do admit that sometimes it was kind of fun and I don't want to take away anyone's fun. So if you're, if you're in a program where you're doing exercises and you just think it's fun, you feel like it kind of helps get the blood flowing in your fingers and warm you up. That can be a good thing. I just want you to be careful in, about thinking that um, the time that you put into exercises is going to help you really uh, become a musician and learn how to play real music. It's not. Exercises can have their place, but you've got to work on repertoire and playing actual songs. All right, let's move on. So this next question uh, comes from Ethan, and he says, how do I know when to use certain chord shapes from the cage system? I tend to gravitate more towards the standard E and A shapes, but would like to incorporate the others and know why and when it would be preferred to use for why and when it would be preferred to use. For example, when would you use a G shape or a C shape instead of another form? All right. Well, I'm going to sound a bit like a broken record. Of course, you guys are already used to that. But the answer is that um, you use specific chord voicings when they are necessary because that's uh, what's used in the song that you're trying to play. Other than that, it's just a matter of, of, of preference. So I teach the cage system in fretboard theory chapter three. There's the fretboard theory book, or I have the full-blown fretboard theory uh, video course, or I'm able to go into more depth. Um, so I teach the cage system, which shows you all the different ways that uh, chords are formed on the fretboard and how you can move around and play chords where you can just go beyond your basic chord shapes and play different chord voicings and different chord inversions and partial chord shapes. And if I, uh, let's see, switch sounds here, you know, how you can 
revoice your chords. Um, I talk about a lot of familiar songs, you know, like how Jack and Diane, for example, um, just uses three chords, A, D, and E, but each section of the song, the chords are played a little bit differently. So sometimes they sound like this. And sometimes they sound like this. Two kind of uh, distinct sections of the song that are actually using the same chords, but they're voiced differently. What does that mean to voice them differently? Well, that's why you got to check out fretboard theory um, chapter three. So as I teach the cage, cage system, <clears throat> I make lots of references to familiar songs. And if you watch the video version, I am able to play a portion of those songs. And in some cases, I actually have a link um, to some uh, short lessons or tabs just so you could quickly um, <clears throat> uh, uh, learn uh, the parts that I uh, uh, demonstrate. So you want to go through that and you want to not only learn like the, uh, the arpeggios and the chord shapes and how to move them around, but pay attention to when I make song references. It's so critical. Go through and uh, learn how to play some portions of those songs so you can see how those different chord shapes are actually functioning in music so you can see how other guitar players um, use those different shapes. And, you know, when you learn a song, instead of just memorizing what's in the tab, you know, analyze it and figure out what chords are these and, you know, what's, what's the shape and figure out how, how they work. So, for example, you might learn Jack and Diane from the tab but if, if you have no idea what the cage system is and you don't really analyze the song to try to figure out what the chords are, you could still play it and you've got it memorized. You know where to put your fingers. But if you don't know what you're actually doing, then you miss the opportunity to take something away from that song that you could use in, other, use in your playing at other times. So, for example, you know if you're <clears throat> playing a song with some friends... And your friend is like, okay, this is, it uses the chords A, D, and E in the open position. And so they might be strumming along. And so you strum along using the same open position shapes. And you're like, this sounds boring. We need something that sounds better. Well, not necessarily. You could say, well, wait a minute. Okay, if you're going to play in the open position using kind of the standard uh, basic chord shapes, let me do something differently. So I might play my A up here and maybe my D like this, and my E like this. So you're playing the same chords, but you are playing um, different chord voicings. You're in a different area in the neck, so you can play something that kind of follows the same chord changes as your friend, but it's a, it's a different part. It's a complementary part, and you can do something like that because you remember that, oh, yeah, Jack and Diane used A, D, and E with some uh, different voicings around the neck. So that's why you want to learn the songs, and that's why you want to analyze them. It's not just about learning the song. It's about seeing how music works so that you can uh, use the same ideas in your own playing. There is a segment um, of Fretboard Theory Chapter 3 uh, in the video version I'm thinking about where I kind of take you through a sample progression, uh, G, C, G, D, 
which would be the progression used in like Brown Eyed Girl by Van Morrison. And I kind of walk, I take you through the fretboard position by position and I show you all the different ways that you could voice those chords. I mean, you could use open chords. You could use standard bar chords. You can break it down and do all sorts of uh, uh, partial chord shapes, you know, um, like... Uh, And then you can go like to the next position and figure out, okay, how can I do something like maybe, uh, how about, you know, whoops, do that again. And you can go to the next position and figure out, okay, what do I got to work with here? Um, what about... And let's say you're playing the song Brown-Eyed Girl uh, in a band, and you know that it's G, C, and D. And, you know, a lot of times when you're performing a song, it's not critical that you play um, the parts directly out of the song. With Brown-Eyed Girl, you probably want to get that intro. Just so the ladies scream, and they know that's their cue to get on the dance floor because they love that song. Um, but, you know, then when the rest of the song kicks in, you could uh, fill the space in a manner similar to what you hear in the recording, but it's really not that critical. You could strum the open chords, or you could pick some other voicing skill. So, um, that's an example of uh, the question that was asked by Ethan was, well, how do I know when to use which shape? Man, it's just you experiment. You get you familiarize yourself with the cage system. You get to see how other people use it in songs. And it just kind of starts to open up the fretboard and you realize that you're just not always um, restricted to one particular position or one particular type of chord. And you just experiment and you move around and you see what you like and what you think sounds good and works with the music that you're playing. All right, moving on, the next question comes from Glenn, and he says, quote, I have several amps, but I never seem to get the sound that I want from the built-in effects. Do you have a good basic or standard use effects pedal that most lead players use? So I get a lot of questions about gear. And I emailed back and forth with Glenn a little bit, <clears throat> asked him what he had specifically and what styles of music uh, that he was playing. So he was playing some classic rock music. I think he was into like blues and CCR and uh, the Beatles and that sort of thing. And there really weren't, you know, many effects in a lot of the music that he said he was uh, that he was uh, playing you know basically there was a good fundamental amp tone and there might be some re reverb uh, and some delay you know every now and then someone might use a wah-wah pedal or you know a phaser or, or or something like that but really if you're trying to get a good guitar sound it really starts with getting a good fundamental amp sound first um, and knowing how to use your guitar and what type of guitar to use and which pickup position to use and that sort of thing. Um, and then you almost always want to have uh, reverb. That's important. 
And then typically, um, I like to use uh, delay a lot, um, particularly if I'm playing uh, lead guitar. Um, delay can just give it more uh, depth and, and, and sustain. Sometimes when you listen to certain recordings, you may not realize that you're hearing delay, maybe because it was not recorded with delay. In other words, the delay, uh, the guitar player wasn't using a delay pedal, uh, there wasn't delay in the amp, but delay was added in post-production by the mixing engineer, along with compression and other effects that really kind of helped to bring the guitar sound to life, helped it fit in the mix better, and, and gave it some more depth and uh, uh, dimension and that sort of thing. So when we're playing, um, we will oftentimes use effects to try to recreate um, the kind of the finished sound that we hear on a recording. So if, you, if you're reading, you know, an article and, you know, someone says, well, you know, Angus Young didn't use any effects. He just plugged in straight into a Marshall. So that's how I'm going to um, get my sound. Okay, well, that's true. He did plug in straight to a Marshall, but then that Marshall was cranked up. It was in a room. It was mic'd. There were mics in the room. It went through mic preamps. It went into the mixing board. The mixing engineer would have added... Uh, uh, some com probably some compression, um, some reverb, some delay, other things. They could have double-tracked it, which is a very common uh, um, recording technique where you play something and then you play it again, the very same thing again, and it just kind of widens the sound and makes it sound fuller. So as we're trying to recreate that you know, in a live situation or if you're just playing at home, um, this is where uh, effects uh, come into play. And I've talked about this in some other, you know, podcast episodes where I talk about adding um, uh, delay and some uh, different, adding some different types of delay along with my reverb in order to uh, create a more uh, natural sound. But the key to getting a good tone really starts with getting a good fundament, fundamental amp sound uh, uh, first. So, and then you really want to have some delay. So, for example, let's see, I'm using the Stoogy Arshall here. Here is, here's just the amp sound. I'm going to turn all the effects off. This is dry, just, just the amp sound here. Okay, and now I'm going to add some delays and reverb and listen to it now. Now it sounds like I'm on stage and I got the amp, amp cranked up and you're kind of like hearing ref reflections, right, from a, from a hall or something like that. So it kind of it breathes life into it, bring, brings it to life and gives it more, uh, more depth. So it starts with the fundamental tone and then you want to add some basic effects on top of that. And that's usually reverb and delay. Um, in terms of your fundamental tone... Um, I think Glenn said that he was using a Line 6 Spider amp. Now, I'm familiar with the Spider amp, and I was never crazy about its sound. You know, they built that amp to try to be versatile, and they added some effects, but I just felt like it didn't really have any anything that was really great about it. Um, and maybe maybe that's why Glenn was dissatisfied with it. So, you know, you got to try some different pieces of gear and find something that has a good sound. There's a reason why some pieces of gear are more expensive than others um, because sometimes it just costs more to make produce something 
That sounds good, right? Although nowadays with technology and the digital technology and how much it's improved, you don't have to spend a lot of money uh, to get uh, a, a decent sound. So I've talked about the Spark Amp, uh, the Yamaha THR. These are really small, low-powered, they call them desktop amplifiers because they're just super tiny. They're not, not the type of amp you would take to a gig. But in most cases, you don't want that type of amp when you're playing at home. You want something that's suitable for making a good sound in your bedroom or in your living room or something like that. So you could look into those models and, uh, you know, Vox and uh, Blackstar and a lot of other amp manufacturers make similar type of um, uh, practice amps that are really small <clears throat> and, and usually have some sort of a digital recreation of some vintage tube amps and stuff. And actually it can sound pretty good. Um, you're likely to get a, a better sound out of that in your bedroom than you would if you had the real amp on hand because the real amp on hand is going to be way overpowered, too loud. You're not going to be able to turn it up to its sweet spot to actually hear the tone it was intended to produce uh, unless you want to blow, blow uh, the windows out and have the neighbors call the uh, uh, cops on you. And what these, what these digital practice amps do is they use technology to kind of recreate those sort of sounds at a much comfortable level. And then they have effects built in so you can have the delay and the reverb on top of it so you can get a little bit of that depth and dimension that I was talking about. And they also have headphone outputs. And um, if you've got a good pair of over-the-ear or in-ear headphones, um, put them on and play, and the sound quality can be much better. You can also monitor music better that way, too, and most of those have uh, aux um, inputs. So you might want to consider, uh, uh, if you're in Glenn's situation here, and you're like, yeah, I got this big Fender Hot Rod Deluxe back here, but I can't really make it sound good. Well, you know what? That uh, You could make that amp sound good if you were on a... Uh, if you were in a live performance situation where you could really crank it up and put a mic on it and uh, uh, maybe put a, a reverb that's of higher quality than the built-in reverb. I wanted to mention that. Um, uh, generally speaking, the built-in reverbs in a lot of amps, I'm talking about ordinary combo amps that you would typically see people use on stage, oftentimes that reverb is just not that good and players will often get a reverb um, effects pedal that they'll either put in front of the amp or sometimes they put in the effects loop so they can bypass the preamp section and um, not color the sound of, of the uh, uh, reverb. And good, a good quality reverb can make a dramatic difference in the sound. I could have a fundamental amp tone put it through a crappy reverb and it sounds like crap, put the same amp sound through a really high quality reverb and it sounds gorgeous. So um, you don't want to overlook that. A lot of the reverbs that are built into some of the modern digital um, amps are going to be, they're going to, it's going to be better than what you would typically hear in, in an amp that just has one built-in reverb sound. You're going to have more control over adjusting the parameters of it. And usually you can select between different types of reverb. Do you want a small room reverb? Do you want a large hall reverb? And so you can kind of sculpt your sound uh, uh, that way. So um, take that into consideration. And take this into consideration as well. I do Skype and Zoom lessons. You can go to my website, click on the uh, 
the menu option that says private lesson and uh, you can view a calendar, select your time zone, pick a time slot that's available that works for you and you can book and pay for your lesson um, right there and we can connect on Zoom or Skype and let's go through your gear. Show me what you have. I can show you what I would do if I was playing through that same rig. I can help you um, set up your fundamental amp tone. A lot of, st of my students have not really gotten very good at understanding the difference between uh, the master volume and then the other volume on your amp, or it might be called um, gain or something like that. But getting the right balance between those affects the tone. I can help you just kind of EQ thing, EQ things. If you've got external effects pedals, but you're not really sure how to set them or the best way to set them up. That's something that I do with students over Zoom. We, you can pick a song, too. You can say, well, I'm trying to play, you know, this David Gilmore solo. Here's what I have on hand. Uh, how, can I, how can I get a good sound? And, we, and I can help you. We can go through that together and experiment with what you have and uh, work toward getting the best sound that you can. And then I could also make some suggestions, you know, if you're someone that's into a particular style. Um, maybe you don't have the right guitar for it. Maybe you're trying to play Stevie Ray Vaughan, but you've got, you know, uh, a Les Paul, or maybe you're, maybe you need something different, but you're not sure what to buy. Tell me what your interests are and what your goals are, and we can go through your gear, and then I can make a suggestion so that you can be more satisfied with your sounds. And by the way, you want to be satisfied with your sounds. Guitar playing is not just about playing. It's as much about tone as it is playing. When you listen to your favorite recordings, it's not just the playing that you fall in love with. It's the tone. Tone is uh, very important. It makes you sound better. Um, uh, it's not a substitute for technique. Don't get me wrong. But if you are playing something well and you have a crappy tone, you're going to sound like crap. If you are playing something well and you have a great tone, you're going to sound great, you're going to be more excited, and you're going to be more inspired. So don't overlook tone. All right, this wraps up podcast episode 77. So now you know how to play legato you know to not get too wrapped up in playing exercises, you know why it's so important to learn the cage system, and you know why it's so important to have good tone. If you're not sure what you should be working on right now in order to become a better guitar player, go to my website, guitarmusictheory.com, answer the questions I ask you about your playing, and I'll send you free custom video instruction calibrated to your current level. I'll show you what you should specifically be working on right now in order to fill gaps in your playing and move forward. Enroll in your free course now at guitarmusictheory.com. You can click on a link in the podcast show notes. All right, guitar engineers, thanks for listening. I'm Desi Serna. I welcome your questions and comments. Before you go, be sure to subscribe to this podcast, give it a good rating, and leave me some positive comments. Then... Keep playing and stay tuned for more.